the positive good was one of the uh, more popular uh, components of the larger pro-slavery uh, Calhounist ideology that uh, really defined uh, the Democratic Party, both at its inception and as it developed throughout the antebellum era. So the many of the components of the positive good were detailed slightly uh, with concepts of Aristotelian natural slavery uh, and uh, what Calhounum, Calhounism, or the, and specifically the positive good, was attempting to do was to take onto itself the kind of reason and logic uh, put forward by Aristotle and apply it to their uh, preferred peculiar institution uh, in the uh, southern democrat states. So in Aristotelian natural slavery, just as a, as a brief review, one of the primary components for slavery to be defined as such was that the slave had to live a life that was better than anything that he or she could have uh, lived without the guidance of a master. And so that became uh, the staple argument for slavery. Uh, but what's particularly interesting, uh, especially as it was a component of, of the larger Calhounist philosophy, uh, the positive good uh, emerged to combat uh, the founding doctrine. Uh, so, uh, as we speak about it today, uh, it was largely popularized in the antebellum era, but it did not originate there. Uh, some of the earliest colonial era arguments for slavery uh, utilized positive good arguments, uh, though they didn't use that title at the time. And what's interesting is that in the colonial era, you had two primary competing philosophies. Uh, you had the natural rights theory, and you had this positive good uh, as it applied uh, to slavery and other things. So essentially you had this this conflict between uh, kind of your enlightenment ideas and your older archaic ideas that had held mankind into various states of, of uh, poverty and subterfuge uh, for the entirety of our, of our uh, history. So as the... Uh, Democrat Party formed, Calhounism uh, became the governing philosophy of its policies and principles, uh, then you see a resurgence of positive good arguments, specifically because of the vacuum created uh, by the very politically influential and powerful Democrat Party uh, at this time pursuing slavery. So that necessitated a rejection uh, or at least a perversion of founding principles. And so with that space created, the various iterations of the positive good were able to uh, kind of rise up to the forefront again. So to, uh, to summarize, uh, really kind of what encapsulates the positive good, uh, it, it, it was first that slavery was a paternalistic institution, uh, that blacks are like children, they required protection, guidance, and also the discipline of their masters. Uh, that slavery was a divine institution. That it was in keeping with providence. That's with a capital P. 
because it spread religion to blacks who otherwise would be condemned to hell for their pagan idolatry. So it was hard not to justify slavery whenever you argue that it's saving their immortal soul. Slavery was an economically superior strategy of a kind of symbiosis between slaves and their masters. And this, this idea is expanded upon in the kind of final unofficial tenet of positive good, which was that southern slaves were at least equal in their condition in life, if not better, than the so-called wage slaves of the free labor north. Now, this became a very popular argument, which we're going to address in detail here shortly. So, of course, you can't talk about the positive good without talking about uh, John C. Calhoun, everyone's favorite uh, Democrat fire eater who managed to uh, transform the political and social and cultural landscape of America in a way that ultimately led to war. Uh, in 1837, he delivered a, well, yet another a very uh, profound, passionate uh, speech in the Senate. And in this speech, he uh, he managed to describe this this bizarre kind of utopian world, uh, the slave utopia. And within this, this type of hypothetical, he, he just, this fantasy, really, he put all of the elements uh, that we've talked about with Calhounism and uh, Aristotelian slavery and then mashed that all together uh, with uh, the positive good. So he views a world uh, where all slaves are happy, they labor all day, but they're just, they cannot be happier. Uh, of course, they're watched over by their paternalistic and benevolent masters uh, who provide for them for every need and want they might have. Uh, from the cradle to the grave, uh, it's your original social welfare state. Uh, he also takes the time to assault uh, the anti-slavery petitions, describing them as a systematic design of rendering us hateful in the eyes of the world with a view to general crusade against us and our institutions. So again, we see this Calhounism thing. If you're anti-slavery, you're actually anti-us, uh, which of course frames all of the political discussions today. If you're not X, then you must be, uh, you know, the reincarnated uh, Antichrist or some such thing. Now this uh, this whole concept of wage slavery, we addressed, addressed a little bit with George Fitzhugh, uh, the uh, the infamous slave socialist, or as some have coined him, perhaps more accurately even, is the honest socialist. Now this this introduction of wage slavery into the Democratic Party, and not just the Democratic Party, but the governing principle philosophy of the Democratic Party, described by its leading figureheads at the time, uh, and mixed as it was in with slavery, it really illustrates a very early influx of, uh, kind of just German thought and German philosophy and theory into the Democratic Party, uh, which is something that uh, will manifest itself later on uh, when it essentially hijacks uh, the Communist Party platform in the early 20th century and renders the party uh, obsolete. Same with the Socialist Party and others. Um, so this was kind of a weird combination of pre-Marxist thought at this point. 
Uh, Marx didn't really become, and I hesitate to use this word, but he didn't really become uh, relevant until 1848 or so. Uh, so we're we're a little farther back in time uh, by about a decade, uh, give or take, maybe two. But we do see uh, the same ideological roots in this argument put forward for the weight for for wage slavery that you'll see it later uh, emerge in Marxist theory. Uh, left Hegelianism and Bafuism and socialism are all within this wage slavery. Uh, theory and argument put forward this time. And we can see this start uh, with uh, Friedrich Engels, the forefather of 19th century Marxism. Uh, he wrote in the condition of the working class in England, uh, he argued that free labor was the equivalent to chattel slavery. He wrote, and I quote, the only difference as compared with the old outspoken slavery is this, that the worker of today seems to be free because he is not sold once and for all, but piecemeal by the day, the week, the year, and because no one owner sells him to another, but he is forced to sell himself in this way instead, being the slave of no particular person, but of the whole property-holding class. So there's that, that lovely kind of uh, later Marxist uh, property holding class thing the whole oppressor oppressed paradigm that he puts forward uh, he's really describing anyone who gets paid for their labor as kind of a prostitute uh, being paid just for uh, the labor that they produce and not realizing that they're slaves simply because they don't have any one particular master but, but they're a slave to this property holding class So Engels really agrees uh, with uh, John C. Calhoun, George Fitzhugh, James Hammond, and, and other fire-eater Democrats in the antebellum era uh, that slavery is preferable to a free labor system. Uh, and actually, uh, Engels argued this. Uh, he described uh, one of the advantages, and I quote, The bourgeoisie, on the other hand, is far better off under the present arrangement than under the old slave system. It can dismiss its employees at discretion without sacrificing invested capital and gets its work done much more cheaply than is possible with slave labor. So Engels describes uh, institutionalized slavery as, a, as preferable to a free market system uh, because, as he claims, it disadvantages the ruling class more to function as a slave master than as an employer. Now, the, the actual phrase positive good is often attributed to a man named Robert Walsh. Uh, and he, he said in just a number of, there's an innumerable amount of pro-slavery arguments presented throughout the antebellum era uh, at this time. Uh, but he said, uh, quote, The physical condition of the American Negro is on the whole not comparatively alone, but positively good. And he is exempt from those racking anxieties the exacerbates of despair, to which the English manufacturer and peasant are subject to in pursuit of their pittance. So here he's comparing uh, enslaved uh, individuals to uh, manufacturers and the peasants of, in England. So he's comparing it uh, to the, I guess, the lower echelons in a different country. Now, James Hammond, uh, he was uh, <laughs> a very... 
a passionate and sensationalist fire eater. Of course, they all were. And when he spoke of the positive good, he actually described slavery uh, in perhaps the most glowing terms. Uh, he refers to it as the greatest of all the great blessings given to man by God. Uh, he says, and I quote here, Slavery is said to be an evil, but it is no evil. On the contrary, I believe it to be the greatest of all the great blessings which a kind providence has bestowed upon our glorious region. As a class, I say it boldly, there is not a happier, more contented race upon the face of the earth as our black slaves. Lightly tasked, well clothed, and fed, far better than the free laborers of any country in the world, their lives and persons protected by the law, all their sufferings alleviated by the kindest and most interested care. Sir, I do firmly believe that domestic slavery, regulated as ours is, produces the highest toned, the purest, best organization of society that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Wow, so this guy, uh, as you might infer, had a rather glowing representation of slavery here. Uh, now, of course, uh, John, John C. Calhoun doesn't really require particular attention. You could pretty well pick uh, anything he ever said in his entire life, and it was a pro-slavery, positive-good Calhounist argument. Uh, but were these uh, competing ideas really uh, kind of came to a head, at least initially, uh, it was a series of debates held between uh, the legendary statesman, uh, Daniel Webster, and a uh, and Democrat by the name of Robert Hayne. In 1830, uh, they participated in the first series of debates, uh, kind of the precursor to the later Lincoln-Douglas debates, uh, that, that really clarified the stark differences uh, not just between political parties, but between regional factions, uh, where you, you end up having Webster representing the founding era, uh, natural rights, uh, the universal human equality, and then you have Hain representing uh, really archaic and primitive ideology, uh, belief in the master-ruling class, and a rigid social caste system to begin with, uh, and and just all the wonderful things that have uh, yoked mankind for all of history uh, came to be represented in Hain. Now, uh, Robert Hain uh, referred to uh, northern blacks, these are our free blacks, as deluded victims of fanaticism uh, that were seduced into the enjoyment of freedom. So they were seduced to be free. And he says, and this, uh, this is a quote, Liberty has been to them the greatest of calamities, the heaviest of curses. Sir, I have some opportunities of making comparisons between the condition of the free Negroes of the North and the slaves of the South. And the comparison has left not only an indelible, indelible impression of the superior advantages of the latter, but has gone far to reconcile me to slavery itself. So this argument of the positive good, of it is best for blacks to be enslaved, uh, permeated 
all of the uh, discussions and discourse at the time. And what we see is this, this kind of infiltration of socialist redistributionist ideologies just clinging to uh, the Democrat Party in much the same way that it would uh, in the coming progressive era uh, and then afterwards as it became increasingly radical uh, and adopted more and more policies and principles of uh, leftist ideologies. But we see the foundations for that laid here, uh, beginning at the latest in 1824 or so. Uh, we start to see this adoption of uh, German philosophy and other other components that also formed the ideological roots for the later advancement of Marxism and the uh, communism and all the other really fun isms that uh, you know are just different shades of gray. Now we see this kind of soft bigotry of low expectations, uh, these kind of racial assumptions, uh, they carried forward into uh, later policy decisions uh, in the United States, uh, often under the pretense of trying to j rectify or justify some injustice against uh, black Americans. And of course, this, this didn't occur uh, for, you know, a century after, after, you know, Hammond is talking about the greatness of the, uh, slave institutions as it saves blacks from a life of uncivilized uh, paganhood. Uh, but nonetheless, we can very clearly trace the continuance of these ideas as they progressed, uh, which of course will be the subject of a later episode once we can actually uh, kind of get beyond these, uh, these older times. But it's vital to establish the proper historical context and foundation uh, to understand really where a lot of uh, modern arguments come from. Uh, so George, uh, this this argument then uh, by George Fitzhugh, Calhoun, Hammond, Walsh, and so many others, uh, it really came to uh, the forefront during this period. But one must understand that these arguments never ceased that these, uh, that this idea that inferior people require a superior governing class of ruling elites to govern their lives because most people are incapable of governing their own. Unless uh, that sounds like too extreme of an assertion, uh, one need only uh, remember uh, Fitzhugh, who posited that 95% of all people uh, were designed to be enslaved by a ruling class of only 5%. Just a little opposed to the founding doctrine there. Uh, so we will continue to explore these and other similar ideas, especially as they reach uh, into the modern day.